that we are in Ephesians. Where's my wife? Stand up, please. So today is our 45th wedding anniversary. She's so thrilled. <laughs> and then today my son is preaching at First Baptist Golson. So I so we may have to just take Chris off the sign out there. Keep Osborne, put him in here. I love college football. It's around the corner. I hate professional football. Way too many thugs for me. I love college football. Love A&M, love Alabama. Alabama had the worst moment in the history of my life as a fan a few years back. Even when we lost to Notre Dame in the 70s to Eric Parsegan in the Orange Bowl because we had the wishbone offense and couldn't win. But at any rate, it wasn't as bad as this moment. We were playing Auburn, whom obviously we hate. So... We're playing Auburn, it's tied, Saban calls timeout, there's a second left on the clock. So he decides to try a field goal, now if you know anything about Alabama football in the last 10 years, you do not want the game to come down to a field goal. We do not have anybody that can do that, and sure enough, so he put all the big guys in the game, and... Uh, Try the kick. Of course, he didn't make it. And Auburn had this really fast guy who caught the ball. Oh, it just hurts to repeat this. <laughs> and ran all the way back to score the winning touchdown. <laughs> that added 10 more minutes to the sermon right there. <laughs> so... Uh, I am just standing like this at the TV. I'm crushed. Because what we did is we made it easy for Auburn because they couldn't win any other way. <laughs> we made it easy for them because we didn't have any fast guys. Now, I guarantee you, if we play Auburn again and it comes down to that moment and Saban calls a timeout and he's got a second on the clock, you know what he's going to do? He's going to put two fast guys back there waiting because our field goal kicker's not going to make it. We made it easy for them to win. Now, that is exactly what Paul is addressing in the passage today. If you remember last week, we looked at the fact, the text says, keep on being angry, but don't sin, let, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. A quote from Psalm 4.4, we look back at that and the fact that we're to have God's disposition that he created us, the highest created being he has, so that we have the ability to reflect his glory greater than anything, and he loves us so intensely and wants us to reflect that glory. There's an anger when that glory is besmirched by us instead of honored by us. And so he says, we should have that disposition. And then following that, in 427, now listen to what he says, Ephesians 4. He says, neither give place to the devil he says look whatever you do don't make it easy for your enemy 
Don't make it where it's an easy thing for him to take you down. Make it hard. Now, a couple things we have to process here. Our culture, and unfortunately a lot of us in the church, view the idea of Satan, the devil, as tooth fairy, Santa Claus, kind of a myth. You've got to be kidding me. Nobody really believes that anymore thing. But the Bible takes a very firm view that you have an enemy. Matter of fact, Jesus, over a 40-day period, talked with him. Over a 40-day period, Satan came and offered him three different temptations. He knew exactly where to hit Jesus, when to hit Jesus. He offered him those temptations, and he and Jesus had a conversation. Now, either Satan's real, or our Lord was hallucinating. And if he was hallucinating, he's not our Lord. So you have to, when you read this book, come out with the assumption that there really is an enemy, and Jesus and he spoke that enemy has one agenda now first agenda was overthrow god lost that he's still going to try that but the bible says he knows that his time is short and he's come down with great wrath first peter 5 8 says he prowls around looking for someone to devour so his agenda is to take you in this room he's got really two agendas to take the people outside this room and keep them from being in this room through Jesus Christ. And then the other thing he wants to do is take those of you in this room and prevent the glory of God from maximizing itself in your life. Now that's his agenda. And he's there. You need to know a couple things. He's real. He's not like the deviled ham picture with the pitchfork and the red suit and the crazy stuff. The Bible says, it's a metaphor, but it says that every precious stone was his cover. In other words, other than those of us in God's image, the most beautiful being God ever created was Satan, which, by the way, explains part of his appeal to Eve, because when he showed up in the garden, he didn't have a pitchfork and tail, he's handsome winsome articulate smooth and she looks at him and his very presence because of his beauty made him appealing he's not going to be unappealing to you he is appealing and he's powerful the archangel of god in the book of jude it says that the archangel of god and satan were disputing over the body of moses satan wanted it so he could get the body. Remember, we don't know where it's buried. He wanted it to put it up so he'd get Israel to worship the body instead of the Father. It says in the book of Jude that Michael, the archangel of God, did not dare to bring an accusation against him. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. If you have the archangel of God that doesn't even mess with him, then do not think you can. He's smarter than you are. He knows the Bible in every language it was written. He knows every single verse. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows your life. He knows how to hit you. He knows exactly what to do. So understand, you face a being 
that's smarter than you are, that's tougher than you are, whose sole agenda now is to keep you out of this room, or if you're in this room, to make sure that the glory of God does not show up visibly in your life. So we face a being who's legitimate. Now, here's what he says. Do not give him a place in your life. Now, I want you to understand part of what that means. I want you to go over to 1 John with me. First, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John. Go to 1 John. We're going to read in chapter 2. But I want you to read what he writes. An intriguing thing. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 12. Now listen to what he writes. I'm writing you, children, because your sins have been forgiven because of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known the one who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. And then he repeats this by simply changing the Greek tense to make a particular point, but that's really his statement. He says three things about us in this room. Our sins have been forgiven. Therefore, we know the Father experientially and personally. And that being who's against us, who's smarter than us, tougher than us, knows the Bible better than us, has already been conquered in our life. So how is it that he gets us to miserably fail? I did a funeral yesterday at seminary for one of the faculty. Great man. He did it right as a husband, as a dad, as a prof, and as a man. Finished well. I don't see that much anymore. Said, I see people packing out of the ministry. I see people failing and blemishing. And the reason, when the Bible says that he's conquered in our life, the reason he's able to get to us is because, now listen, we give him place. We give him the chance. He can't win in the life of a believer who does not give him a place in their life. So how do you give him place? Now, it's when you ignore what's in here. When you don't stand on this and you don't believe this and you don't trust this and you don't base your life on this, you give him a place every single place that you disagree with what this says. I don't want him to take you down. I don't want him to prevent you from doing what God wants you to do. And that's the two ways he takes you down. He either stops you from representing God's glory or he puts you in a place where you damage God's glory. Even when it's coming from a good source, you don't ever disagree with what that says. 
there's a new movie coming out called The Overcomer. It's a movie produced by a group of great, godly people. They produced three other movies. Facing the Giants, The War Room, I can never remember the name of the second one. But it's about a guy, huh? What is it? Fireproof. Thanks, Leanne. Fireproof. Now they've got a new one coming out, Overcomer. Really pretty good acting. We're generally not good in that area. But the acting's pretty good. Plots are good. Good stories. Just one danger point. When you watch the movie Facing the Giants, he struggles with who he is in Christ as coach. And then at the end, when he comes back to Christ and he's right with Jesus, the closing credits have he wins two state football championships. Fireproof, the guy absolutely decimates his marriage, but then he loves her for 30 days and gets her back. In the war room, they pray hard and their prayers conquer all. So I don't know what the ending will be to the overcomer, but it's about a young girl trying to find her identity in Christ. And my bet is that what you're going to discover is she's a runner is that at the end of the movie, she's going to win the race. That's the problem. It doesn't always work out because you love Jesus. Now listen to me. Propositional truth from the scripture is always true. It's never only true part of the time. And the idea that if you love Jesus, everything's going to be okay in your life may be true for some of you, but it won't be for others of you. Who are the three guys? Jesus' top three boys among the disciples. Who are the ones that saw everything the others did? Peter, James, and John. Now, if you're John, all that theology works well. He's exiled for a little bit, but he dies peacefully in his 90s. Writes four books. We just read part of it. The most spiritual gospel of the four. The book that no preacher in America understands, Revelation. When I ask him about that when we get there. But he dies in his 90s peacefully. Worked out for him. Peter, it doesn't. Number one, he has the hardest ministry of all the apostles. Because he's the apostle to the Jews who reject everything he says about Jesus. You say, well, there were 3,000 people saved the first Sunday he preached. That's exactly right. The first message he preached, there were 3,000 people saved. But they were mainly from out of town. They all left. The Jewish Christianity did not grow. He was God's messenger to a people that will reject him, but God simply saying, I am not going to leave you without a witness, even though I know you're going to say no to me. He will die at the hand of Nero. Two years before Titus will come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple and the city. He will die with Paul. 
So you might say, it kind of worked out a little for him. Then you have James. One of the three. Christianity has just started when Herod kills him. Kills him. He takes Peter and puts him in the prison, and overnight an angel comes, wakes Peter up, walks him out of the jail. So if you're James's widow, right? And you watch these four films, that if you live for Jesus, everything works out well, and Peter's wife still has a husband, and you don't, then you're going to look at these movies and go, wait a minute, it didn't work out that way. But see, what the Bible says is you don't ever worry about the outcome of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's his problem. Your problem is to just show off his glory. Because the outcome's going to be different for everybody. As a matter of fact, Peter and John were standing there after the resurrection. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, listen, they're going to take you where you don't want to go when you die. Now Peter, being Peter, he looked over John and said, what about him? Is he going to have a hard life too? And that's when Jesus said, not your problem. If I want him to stay alive until I come, that's not your problem. You never base who you are in Jesus Christ on the outcome you desire. You simply show off his glory and you let him worry about the outcome. We have a ton of Christian high school coaches who have never, never sniffed a state championship. We have a bunch of Christian college coaches who have never won a national championship. We have businessmen who as Christians are in the Fortune 500. We have other businessmen who as Christians that can barely put food on their table. Do not ever, ever, ever judge your outcome by anything other than the cause of Jesus Christ. Good people making the movies, but a dangerous precedent. Don't give him a place where he can discourage who you are in Christ. And number two, don't let him put you in a place where he takes away from you who you could be in Christ. Now, Emotions play a part in Christianity. But they're not to be the driving force in your life. You don't live by what you feel. You live by what that says. Now this is critical. Because I fear in this day we've got people that graduate and leave and go somewhere else and their feelings prevent them from going to the church God has for their life. My first church, Oakwood, 30, small little sanctuary, all wood stage. Stage. My, my minister of music is 86 years old. He's never been married. The pianist is his sister, Miss Maddie. She's 87 years old. She's never been married they live with their sister who is 88 years old who doesn't come to the church he's my music guy so the first Sunday I'm there now if you know anything 
about a rural East Texas very small church. If you know anything at all, if you're the pastor, there's some point in the program where you have to do the pastoral prayer. You have to stand up and you have to pray for a while. So I start the first Sunday pastoral prayer. We have no carpet on the stage. I'm in the middle of my prayer and I hear a shuffling coming behind me. And if you're a pastor, you're always worried when someone's behind you anyway. So I hear the shuffling and I'm trying to pray and I hear the shuffling and it goes past me. And I'm, I want to look up, but that would be unholy. So I hear because he can't hear, so he says, Miss Maddie, what's the next hymn? So Miss Maddie tells him, 87. So he shuffles back over, and at this point now, I'm wondering, am I still praying or am I totally lost here? He was my worship guy. His sister was the pianist. Not a college student in the world today that would attend that church because it won't provide the feeling and the style of worship they want. When in fact, if that had been my take, I would have missed some of the richest things in my life. His name is J.D. Guest, and J.D. and I would sit down periodically. Always same story, pretty much. But he told me about being saved in a Brush Arbor revival, hearing the Holy Spirit speak to him every single time. Tears in his eyes. Every time. I'd have missed that. I'd have missed the 90-year-old lady, Miss Campbell. We had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. The sanctuary was upstairs every single Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday night, every time. Ice hot, didn't matter. She was bounding up those steps with her Bible open on the front row, sitting there waiting to hear something. Which if you're a young pastor out of seminary, you realize she has read the Bible longer than I have been alive. So you're terrified because you're trying to figure out, say something to her she doesn't know, but she didn't care. She just loved Jesus, so anything out of this book touched her heart. Would have missed the chance. Started a little RA program, which is Royal Ambassador, for those of you young, a little old Southern Baptist program. I had eight little guys, none of them coming to the church, eight little guys coming every Sunday night. Mothers let them come, poured the word into them. On Tuesday nights, my wife and I hosted a youth Bible study we had 14 to 15 kids, only one of which went to our church who came with the chance to play volleyball or softball, had the chance to pour the gospel into those kids, all of which most of us today would miss because we're not going to a church where a man shuffles across the stage and in the middle of the service asks for the hymn number because that's not trendy and cool, but you miss all that Jesus Christ has for you. Don't let him win. 
don't give him a place. You lock down on everything in him so that he can't take you down and instead you hurt him. Because every little boy that heard that gospel killed him. Every youth that heard that gospel killed him. Every person that heard the truth, it killed him. It breaks him down when we are not conquered by him. Listen, he's conquered by us. That is the beauty of who you are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, burn in us through your Holy Spirit that this book and everything in it is to drive who we are. Make that real in our life so he doesn't win over us. Instead, we win over him. Thank you. Because you said in here, we are more than conquerors. Let that be true in every home, in every life in this room. In Jesus Christ's name. The heads bowed and your eyes closed. Never met Christ? It's a great day to find him. God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship as he speaks to your heart this morning. You come.